This is the Banner Responsibility Podcast, where we sit with changemakers and frontline disruptors and shift the narrative of Compass to a world with brighter possibilities. I'm your host and award-winning storyteller Mukul Bhatia, speaking from Kathmandu, Nepal, and today we have a very special guest. Based out of New Zealand, Shani Lal is Fijian and Indian identity and identified themselves as non-binary and hijra. This LGBTQI rights activist spearheaded the campaign that led New Zealand to ban the controversial practice of conversion therapy earlier this year. Lal, who experienced the therapy as a child growing up in Fiji, founded the Conversion Therapy Action Group after moving to New Zealand as a teenager. Last year, it helped deliver a petition with over 150,000 signatures to Parliament, which responded with a bill to make the treatment illegal. Lal, a law student, was included in the New York University Center on the International Cooperation's first cohort of young justice leaders in February and our Forbes 30 under 30 list batch of 2022. Most recently, they're a featured writer for New Zealand Herald, the largest national daily in the country. Welcome, Shanil. It brings me so much joy to have you on the show. Kia ora. Thank you so much for having me. How are you and how's life? How's everything going? Oh, I am well. Life has been a blessing. <laughs> How are you? I'm good. I'm good. Um, I'm in Kathmandu. I'm here to produce a documentary, my first film, actually. And uh, there's a lot happening. And I'm talking to some of the most incredible people right now, like you. So it's it's been great. It's been great. Lots of work, lots of beauty. And I've been obsessed by your Instagram. I want to know everything from your skin, skin secrets. How do you glow so well? To the fact that how did you do this all so early and so beautifully and so gracefully? Well, we'll start with the skincare because that's the easy stuff, right? <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah. I mean, everything that goes on my skin is made by Demologica. So <laughs> okay. Okay. So every, and I, I grew up thinking that I had really oily skin. So I just put a lot of acids on my face and burnt my face. And so now I'm wow. in the process of restoring the layers of my skin. But, okay. you know, Instagram, Instagram is a facade. You only show the mm. world the best parts of your life and everything else is just kind of hidden because it, you feel really insecure if you share that you're not doing well. So anyone who sees my Instagram sees that I'm really successful. But <laughs> I was on the phone today for an hour with a doctor trying to get a diagnosis for ADHD. So, you know, there's my personal life and then there's the mm. life on Instagram. Mm. But I think that that's the beauty of your Instagram. You actually, I mean, I know Instagram looks beautiful, but I feel like what really got me to your work and to you was how naturally honest you are. Like, you look perfectly imperfect and you share that imperfection beautifully and gracefully. And I think that's what makes you more authentic and more real. And that's what draws more people towards your cause and yourself. So congrats on building such a beautiful community and doing so much so early in life. That's 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 huge. Oh, oh thank you so much. I think... Because I grew up in a country that criminalized homosexuality till I was about 10 years old, um, as a queer feminine kid, I never really had a sense of belonging or a community. So as I got older, that need for a community got stronger. And so because I couldn't have that around me physically, I built it on the internet. And I think that's the power of social media is that you can meet a lot of your needs on the internet. And that's kind of what mm. I did with my social media platform. Mm. 
Yeah, and it shows that it shows. I think that there's so many people who are backers of you and it, it really resonates to what real life community could be like because there are also a lot of haters, a lot of a lot of everything. But I feel like I've seen I, I've been I've been really stalking all through your pictures and I've been stalking through the comments and you have some really <laughs> dedicated people who are there with you on with this cause that you work on. So so that's 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 huge, you know. It's not it's not one of those inauthentic social media you know, where social yeah. media gets its representation yes. from from being bad. I think you're able to channelize it in a good way and I'm 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 really happy for you that you're able to do that. Yeah, I, I personally really appreciate social media because of the kind of love you get from it. Because sometimes mm. I have old women who have children my age, so they could be my, sometimes they can be my grandparents' age, because my grandparents had children very young, and some white people in this country have children later, right? So mm. I grew up in a brown family, so my grandparents are old enough, no, <laughs> I'm confusing this, white people in New Zealand are old enough to be my grandparents, but their children are my mm. age. So normally they right. look at me, they're like, oh yeah, you're, you're old and young enough or old enough to be my child. And I think the most powerful thing is that sometimes people reach out to me and they say, well, my child is queer and they've just come out to me and having a social media there has actually helped me work through that. And I think that's the most powerful thing about having a social media that educates and that mm. gives representation to people because, you know, these people don't really know where to go parents of queer children don't really know where to go even in countries mm. like new zealand that are seen as progressive so when you have mm. a platform that kind of strives to give representation to queer people and educate allies it is really helpful for those people yeah i agree i agree and i think that uh, i think that there is a lot of the consequence but mostly we you know as humans we're kind of like we have a negative bias and we think mostly of the negative stuff but there's so much beautiful connections there's so many beautiful people that i've met on the internet as well and i feel like with your cause and you know like you mentioned how people are able to reach out directly which wouldn't have been possible if it wasn't for social media so that's definitely there but before social media happened before before the whole boom of social media yeah. young change makers the whole the whole thing happened who who was chenille then uh, what were they like and yeah. what's the journey well i was born in 2000 um, in Fiji. So it's very handy for me because I can just count my age with the years. So <laughs> mm. It's 2001, I'm one, uh, 2020, I'm 20. So um, I was born in Fiji <laughs> in 2000 and Fiji was a very um, politically unstable country. So when I was born, Fiji had its third coup. So they were overthrowing the government, right? So that, that mm. happened when I was a few months old. And then when I was about six years old, there was another coup and they overthrew the government again. So in the first six years wow. of my life, there were two coups and the government had been overthrown twice. And one mm. of the coups were the ethnic coups. And essentially, when Fiji and India were being colonized, they took a group of Indians from India to Fiji and mm. the native Fijians were never consulted on that. So there was a lot of tension between these two groups. So when an Indian became the prime minister of Fiji, native Fijians overthrew that government. So it was a, mm. it was, that's why it's called an ethnic coup because they overthrew the government because someone who was not native to the country had become prime minister. So I obviously belong to both communities, but I have the canvas of an Indian person which meant that suddenly I was 
outed from my community. I no longer belong mm. to the native Fijian community because I didn't look like them. And all the native Fijians that supported Indians at that time were also attacked by those nationalists. So from a very young age, I was kind of removed from my community, not because of my queerness, but rather my racial identity as an Indian living in Fiji, but also being a native Fijian. So that happened quite early in my age and I lost my community. That's how I first lost my community. But I, I think when I started school, I was about six, seven years old and I'd always been a very feminine kid. And so my queerness kind of just started coming very, very open. I, I just couldn't hide it. There was no hiding for someone like me. And mm. my religious leaders in the community started to pray my gay way, essentially. And uh, the way that it worked was that they convinced me that uh, if I did not change my queerness, my family would disown me and my community would banish me and that I, I would burn in hell for the rest of my life. And for someone like myself, a six, seven, eight-year-old who'd mm. known nothing but their community, that is quite a frightening idea. So I went into conversion therapy wanting to change because who wouldn't, who would want to be disowned by their family and banished by their community? So from a very young age, I was in conversion therapy. Um, I mean, Hindus and Christians, those were the two main religions that kind of practiced conversion therapy on me. And then I started high school and it was just the most extreme my conversion therapy had been. But suddenly in 2014, we got the chance to move to New Zealand and I just jumped at it because that was my kind of escape. Because I was like, there's no way I'm going to be able to make it in this country. So we moved to New Zealand 2014. I'm 14 years old, settled into this white majority country, which used to be a colony. Um, now it's still dominated by colonial systems and colonial structures. And then in 2017, I was volunteering at like a hospital and a church leader came up to me and offered to pray my gay away. And I was like, hold up, New Zealand, this white majority country that everyone says is extremely progressive, still allows the practice of conversion therapy. And that was really the moment where I was like, I've got to, I've got to bend this, bend this practice. So I told myself that I, I can, I must, and I will. And five years later, I have. So <laughs> that kind of is what happened with my life in that short amount of time. That's incredible. You never wasted time. You just went for it. <laughs> you know, you didn't think this through. You were like, we got to do this. We got to do this. But yeah, that's incredible. Would, that's incredible. Yeah. And it's, it's mean, such I, a heavy no thing. There was no time to it, think. There was no time to think. But it's also such a heavy thing. I think the story itself is, um, it sounds really hard. I'm sure as a personal experience, it must be really hard going through such incredibly intense emotions. And the depth of it all seems pretty intense and you were eight when it all started so um it's great that you created a platform and you created a policy shift that you know like stuff that you had to go through through those learnings you kind of made something for others who would come after you and that's that's mm. that's amazing um while you're dealing with all these amazing uh, from the from the skincare uh, collaboration and the hate that comes along with it to policy making to winning Forbes 30 out of 30 there is a lot happening in Chanel's life so I want to know that what is Chanel like when all of this does not happen what is he in person what is he um what is he without all these like externalities and how does he find harmony with 
who he is, who they are. Well, harmony. I think my life is a bit chaotic without, <laughs> um, and I think mm. that's primarily because of the way that my brain works. I don't really have what people would consider a normal brain. So, I, if you gave me a list of ten things to do, um, a normal person would list them on a to-do list and then do one thing at a time and tick them off right. But I would group them all into a box. Start the first task. Read the second one. Send the email for the third one. Start reading the documents for the fourth one, and by the end of the day, I would have done nothing. I would have completed nothing. So that's <laughs> that's how my brain works. So there's really no harmony. It's a bit chaotic. Um, but outside, you know, the social media and what people see on the outside, I absolutely adore cats. I love cats, and so that's what I do. I if I got the chance, I would buy an estate in the forest and live with lots of cats, and I would never see people again. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds also, like a dream. Yeah, I'm also a huge fan of um, Dancing with the Stars in Strictly Dancing BBC. So mm. that keeps me together. <laughs> okay, okay, I can see you dancing. I'm sure you must be a great dancer. <laughs> and well. And, and, um, I think that I think that a lot of the a lot of the time when you're dealing with with a lot of different people, I think one way to deal with haters is to you know the regular way, and the other way is the Chanel way, which is the most eloquent way of making <laughs> the haters seem like the perfect subject matter of what we need to change. And it's it it just hits you so well because it's so real. It's a real person who's interacting with hate, and you're able to convert that hate into something more thoughtful something more channelized into, you know, into a dialogue and without really being rude, without really, you know, harming the hater itself. So um, how did that happen? How did that generative rebellion imbibe in you to, to, to create that shift? In... Yeah, well, see, I got into politics when I was 17 years old, right? So at that time, I didn't really understand what it meant to be a young brown person in politics. So when I, there was this event called Youth Parliament, and that's when all young people, 120 young people from across the country are selected to represent their member of parliament. So we went to Youth Parliament, and at Youth Parliament was me and my other brown friend, and we were held to this unreasonable high standard where we had to be disciplined and we had to be excellent, right? And we were like, why are the two of us being held to this standard? At the same event, there was this white guy who had taken a picture with a Make America Great Again hat and had pulled a Nazi salute. And he went on to become a candidate for parliament. So he went on to run for parliament, whereas me and my friend, we were called pigs who were wasting the taxpayer money. So we were seeing how brown young people and white young people were being treated to entirely different standards. And because we were playing the colonizers game, essentially, mm. we had to play by their rules. So I think for me, I learned quite young that as a young brown person, if I wanted to be respected in the system, I had to play by their rules. And that meant to maintain decorum, to maintain respectability, to maintain civility. And that's how I kind of came to censor myself, because I do feel like on the internet, there's a very censored version of, version of myself. Because, you know, this idea of respectability, civility, decorum, who created these standards? These are creations of mm. white men. Because these are standards of white men because 
way that they came into power, the way that white men across the world came into power was colonization, essentially. And there was nothing civil about murder and rape and colonizing indigenous communities. Once they came into power, they establish all these systems of decorum and anyone who retaliates against that status quo is labeled unkind, uncivil, incapable of maintaining decorum and is cancelled. So I feel like sometimes we need a little bit of anger towards the status quo. Mm. Mm. No, that's that's beautiful. And I think that the way you the way you also do it, it's so poetic. It's not it's not just the anger, but I think it seems very channelized and very eloquent. So and that's beautiful. I think that I've been following the comments as much as your captions and I think that each of them, beat the memes you share, actually hit the right spot. And you know, it's it makes it makes change making more accessible for all crowds and all people. So it's a very inclusive community of change making, I would say. So um yeah, that's 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 pretty epic. And while you do that, do you think that sometimes this it's it, it gets a little hard? Like how does how does this affect because I mean, you're 22 now, right? Am I right? Yeah. Yeah. So at 22, um, I remember, actually, I was I was a journalist in the war, so I shouldn't say, but most people actually have a very lighter, <laughs> very lighter sense of, you know, 22 year old while you're dealing with here policy shifting and, you know, like changing so many things and being a, being a role model and being a face for so many different things. How do you handle, how do you handle you being 22 while doing with all that? <laughs> Well, you know, um, you don't really handle because it's a bit of a, it's a bit of a learning process, and I don't really think you get the balance right until you become older. And I think that's the beauty of growing up is that you kind of get your life mm -hmm. together a little bit more, or you get better at pretending. I think because I feel like I'm getting even better at pretending <laughs> every single day. But right. I think it's actually incredibly exhausting to be a young person but not allowed to be young because I personally yeah. will never never get my teenage teen years back and I will also never get my young years back after I age out but I will also never be afforded the opportunity to be a reckless teenager because now I'm under mm. a microscope right this one time I wrote mm. a comment under my friend's Instagram post and that comment became the subject of a news article. So the kind of scrutiny that I'm under means that I have to be absolutely perfect at all the time. So I will just get, you know, criticized in the media. So, so yeah, that's, I think that's my biggest regret of coming into politics at such a young age is because I will never get these years back and I could have done politics at a later age. But I guess um, if I, manage to get myself into a position of power, then it becomes my responsibility to change what powerful people look like. And mm. so once I have that power, if, if I ever, and this is even if I will have the stamina, if I ever make it to prime minister, I mean, I'm going to party, <laughs> I'm going to party and I'm going to post on my Instagram story so that people know that politicians are humans and <laughs> they're allowed to party. <laughs> I think, and I that's think that's going to shift. Yeah, I, and, I, and I just hope I that that shifts. Yeah, shifts like the image yes. of what it means to be an activist. Because I feel like people take themselves too seriously generally, but once you become a bit mm. of an activist or you have a bit of a platform, then you become even more serious. And you know, mm. life's not about being angry and serious all the time. 
Yeah, and we don't need more burnt out leaders. I think I need more more leaders who yeah. party and share their photos of Instagram and glowing skin and partying hard. Yeah, I, I would love to see that. Yeah, so I I, I vote for Chanel already. Um, <laughs> um, what is power for you, Chanel? Like, what is it that that the word power does for you in your mind, in your heart, in your spirit, and what does it mean for you in your future? Well, you know, it really. Power is a very complicated concept because I feel like a lot of the times power has been held over me rather than I haven't really had that power myself and I've always kind of been fighting an uphill battle with power, with authority. Because when we started the movement to ban conversion therapy, our government didn't support it. It took us more than four years to convince the government to support us with the movement to ban conversion therapy. and. The only reason they supported us was because they feared losing their power. It was election year and a majority of New Zealanders said, we want you to ban conversion therapy. And if you don't do that, we won't elect you again. And that's when the government said, mm. actually, we will ban conversion therapy. So I feel like a lot of people do things to help others out of the fear of losing their power. And I personally think that's such a sad reflection of society is that we do things when we fear that we're going to lose our privilege or lose our power. And you know, as a trans person, I often get told that, you know, Chanel, you're so brave for what you do. And, you know, I personally, am, I'm tired of being brave. I would rather not be brave. So I, what I tell people is that stop congratulating me or stop telling me that I'm brave and go ahead and demolish the systems that require me to be brave. And I think that's kind of my struggle with power is that I would I personally want to live in a world where no one actually holds power over any other person's humanity mm. but I think I'm being a bit idealistic well we need idealism at this stage of our post-pandemic world right like we need to know what's the ideal way to be simply to reach towards that side and I just wish that uh, there's a lot of acceleration in your path and you're able to you know still be able to deal as much as uh, demolish the system with the courage that comes along with it. And I think that having so many recognitions and having so many early things is go definitely going to set the stage more. And the world is definitely watching. Um, that, that's, the, that's the good side and bad side of power already. But I think that, I think that good things are coming and I, I, I wish the best for you for that. Um, this brings us to the last uh, sort of a round of our podcast, which is the most imaginative one, which is the one where we actually get to sit together and build our beautiful utopia. So uh, <laughs> the, pand the pandemic was our excuse to start this possibility podcast where everybody had this like narrative of, you know, a doomsday narrative, and we wanted to change and shift the narrative into a more positive one. Um, and, and positive in a way that actionably positive. So we invite people like you and incredible humans who actually ideated the possibilities of beauty, the possibilities of magic and the possibilities of um, all the good things that lie ahead in, in on this planet 100 years from now. So I want to know from Chanel's point of view as to what is it and where is it that they would like to see the world? Hundred years from now. <laughs> hundred years. Okay, so I'm imagining a world in which I will not be alive. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and I mean, I would I would hope that a lot of the incremental change would happen in my lifetime. Um, I feel like um, queer people who came before me were kind of handed the task of 
really reversing some of the most extreme colonial laws, such as the criminalization of homosexuality, right? And then when people like myself came around, we kind of inherited that legacy and we had to keep running with it. And uh, I think about my ancestors, I think often about my queer ancestors, and I think that they were forced to suppress their queerness in that colonial era. And now I sense that those ancestors are living through me. And I get like goosebumps mm. when I think about like my ancestors living their suppressed queerness through me because they didn't get to do that when they were around. And I hope that my vision for the future is that I hope that the descendants that are to come will live in a world where they thrive, free for, from any kind of fear. And yes, I think absolute liberation is where I want to be especially for trans people of color. Mm. Mm. And what do you think will change and shift the narrative, especially in a time gap like 100 years? Where do you think that at a policy level or at, a, at an anthropological slash social level, where is it that we can shift the narrative to a brighter possibility? Well, I think what we are seeing a lot and a lot of is uh, a resurgence of indigenous peoples taking back control of their lands. I think prior to colonization, at least in our communities, um, I live in Aotearoa, New Zealand, right? And Maori are the indigenous peoples of Aotearoa. And prior to colonization, Takatapui, who are queer indigenous people of Aotearoa, were integral to Aotearoa. And they were not only just a member of society, they were actually celebrated in their community. And so what we are seeing in New Zealand, in Aotearoa, is that a lot of the land is being returned to Māori, the indigenous people. A lot of the governance power is being returned to Māori. And with that, what we are seeing is that they are reinstating their indigenous practices. And a part of the indigenous practices is tanga, which just means to uphold the rights of indigenous queer people. And I think that's that's for me, that's, I think, where we need to be. I think all over the world, colonies or ex-colonies need to start returning power to Indigenous communities. But obviously, that doesn't necessarily look the same for all places. Mm. Mm. And, uh, and, and in terms of, like, um, the very identity and the very thread, a lot has happened in terms of, like, um, the LGBTQI rights in a positive direction from in the last... 20 something years so i feel like where do you see where do you see uh, the lgbt community 100 years from now well <laughs> well to be fair i think we need to draw a very clear distinction between indigenous queer communities and colonial queer communities because um mm. hijra mm. and vakasa lewa lewa and mahu and vakasa uh, and all of these indigenous queer identities are distinct they're very very different from what it means to be lgbtqia plus because i personally do not identify with that acronym um i think that colonization was stripping away indigenous peoples from their indigenous queer identities and neo-colonialism is imposing white queer identities onto indigenous peoples and I personally mm. would really hope if we can move away, if indigenous peoples all over the world could move away from this idea of colonial queerness, which is captured by the acronym LGBTQIA+, and reclaim their own identities. Because when I look at that acronym of LGBTQIA+, none of those letters make sense for me. 
all indigenous queer identities are shoehorned into the plus at the very end. Not only are we rendered invisible, mm. that shoehorning into the plus strips our identities of our culture. And that's, that's what I think is neocolonialism. I think, you know, the queer community has a lot of racism to deal with, especially in places like New Zealand. We are some of the worst. Could you actually help us break the bubble of what New Zealand and New Zealand is like? Because we've just heard the good stuff outside of New Zealand about New Zealand. So, you know, you we'd know, like to know as to what it's like and yeah. what are the issues. Well, I'll give you one real damning stat, right? Uh, Maori women, Maori women mm. are the indigenous women of Aotearoa New Zealand, right? Maori women are the highest incarcerated indigenous women in the entire world. So that's that's what New Zealand is, that we incarcerate indigenous peoples at the highest rate compared to any other country in the world. And <laughs> that is a direct impact of colonization. And a lot of the people, a lot of people just kind of look at New Zealand and adore us because we do really, really well for white people. But then we look at people of color, we look at indigenous communities and it's some of the, we have some of the worst impacts here. Um, yeah, but no one really wants to talk about mm. it because that makes New Zealanders have a really um, prote are really protective of their image. Mm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, now that you have an entire section in 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 one of the biggest uh, national daily, what is it that we can expect from you to you know change, shift, and talk about? I've actually so far written everything entirely about queer issues and I believe that um not I believe I am the only trans person of color working for the company. So <laughs> so a lot of the queer issues are just going to fall on my shoulder. So I have been writing um last week I wrote a column and then someone was like, Well Chanel is Chanel is a they them, which means that they have a mental illness and we don't have to listen. <laughs> To them, so that's the kind of discourse that we have around trans people in New Zealand. Um, wow. So, so now, like a lot of the times when I write columns, New Zealanders get very upset because they think that I'm somehow forcing my queerness onto them. I'm like, it's a bloody article. If you don't want to read it, don't read it. No one's going to shove that article down your throat. <laughs> so, that, that's 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 the attitude towards trans people. I think gay men are very palatable cisgender gay men are very palatable and very well accepted in New Zealand because they just kind of like, you know, it's, they don't really, I don't know, they've just <laughs> come a long way, I think, with them. Whereas if you start talking about trans people, then there's a lot of tension. In fact, when we were trying to ban conversion therapy, the opposition said we should ban conversion therapy for gay men and lesbian women but we should keep conversion therapy legal for trans people so now for me as a trans person of color writing for national media or mainstream media i think a lot of this is about ensuring that i take the voices of trans people and put it right in the middle of the conversation mm, mm, mm. and how do you deal with that how do you how do you hold your power without you know yeah, I mean, some of the comments, the comments are just horrific because they accuse you of, if you're a trans person, you know 
anything you write will definitely get you accused of pedophilia. And that's the most common mm. common insult that trans people get in New Zealand. I mean, I've been called a pedophile a hundred times just for saying that pronouns are not biological. <laughs> so that's the kind of discourse that we, that's the kind of hatred that trans people get in New Zealand, right? And I feel like to maintain my sanity, mm. I just have to tell myself that I've written for The Guardian. I'm not going to fight with someone who's only written for Twitter.com. That's a good way to go about it. Well, this 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 was incredible. I think Shanil, you're you're filled with this incredible generative rebellion, and uh, I wish you the best of luck to keep empowering more, and uh, keep creating these 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 dialogues, these these discussions on the internet the way you do it. And I feel that uh, um, I want to ask you one last question. Actually, where do you see Shanil <laughs> ten years after? Now, where do you see yourself in 2032? Oh, I don't like to do, um, I don't like to imagine, I don't like to imagine my future for myself because as, as a young person, right, when I was about, um, you know, teen, just, just entering conversion therapy, I almost felt like I was not going to make it at all. And I was like, I mean, the only reason I didn't really kill myself was, oh my God, I should have done a trigger warning, but <laughs> you should put a trigger warning before this for suicide. Um, when I was when I was just entering conversion therapy, I was like, "Oh, this is not worth it. My life's not worth it. I'm going to kill myself." And the only reason I did not was because I was like, "My mom's not going to make it. If I kill myself, my mom's not going to make mm. it." And so that kind of kept me around. Fast forward ten, twelve years, I'm in the Forbes and I'm in Vogue and I'm changing the laws of the country. And I thought that my life would begin and end with me hiding my true self. But mm. I kind of just proved to myself that life actually changes and it changes for the better. So you stick around and you do what you believe is the best. You have your heart mm. in the right place and your life changes. So who knows what's going to happen in 10 years? <laughs> well, I, that's very mindful. And I, 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 I love talking to you. It was an incredible pleasure to have you on the show, Shneel. I, I wish you so much of all the goodness and lightness and beauty and uh, magic and all the good things as much as this rage, this, 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 um, uh, this beautiful impact based motif that you have in your work yeah i think that i think that i wish you the lighter side too because i think yeah. it's all about the balance i i don't believe in faking it when you grow up i believe in doing it for real so yeah good luck for your journey chanel oh thank you so much let's let's hope for a soft chapter <laughs> yes Yes, that's what we're looking for. Well, thank you. Thank you, everyone who was listening to Shanil. Shanil is incredible, and we want to see every... Shanil, actually, would you want to share your handle with everyone so that people could watch your journey and you know oh. read some of the works <laughs> that you do? Well, it's Shanil Lal. So that's S-H-A-N-E-E-L-L-A-L-L. That's Shanil Lal. I, I personally request everyone to follow them because they are doing an incredible work and they're absolutely beautiful and they're magical in their approach of change making. They're bringing the best of lightness and real talk on the platter. And I think that's so rare and we need some more of that. So thank you, Shanil, for your time and I'll let you go. Have a great night and uh, yeah, thanks. Thank you. <laughs> okay. Have a cool night. Bye.